Good morning, River Valley Church. How are we doing? River Valley Church in the flesh, River Valley Church in digital land. Welcome, greetings to you all. We are uh, glad to be together this morning yet again, and especially glad today because it's New Series Sunday, and that's always exciting. We have a new series. We have a part one, and that's, I mean, I guess maybe I'm excited. Are you excited? Yeah, okay, good. It's like Christmas coming early. Part one, yay. Uh, so we are starting this morning a new series entitled Jesus Is, and if I, could have writ- if I could have written the title to the sermon series with a blank, Jesus is blank, right? Have you ever noticed that there's lots of answers to that statement? Or maybe you could say it as a question, who is Jesus? Have you ever noticed there's lots of answers to that question, if you put it that way, who is Jesus? Or if you say Jesus is, and there's a blank there, there's lots of different people would put lots of different things in that blank, right? So it's almost as if if someone were to ask the question, who is Jesus? It's almost, and really not a stretch, to say the appropriate answer to that question is, according to who? Or I should say, according to whom? Thank you, English grammar (laughs) wife. So, uh... Someone says, who is Jesus? And really, not to be smart-alecky, but really a legitimate answer to the question is a question, who is Jesus? Uh, Who is Jesus according to whom? Because you're going to get lots of different answers. And so what we want to do with this study series is kind of pivot off of that idea um, and really look at um, who is Jesus from a variety of different perspectives, some of which are more Um, mm, valid and valuable than others, let's just say. All right, so we're going to have a little bit of fun, um, and and then we're going to study some some bedrock reality. So um, so here's here's kind of a headline passage for this study. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the believers a couple thousand years ago in the church at Corinth, the city in ancient Greece. And here's a section of what we know of as 2 Corinthians. This is what we call chapter 11, Um, and it says this, Paul says, I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted, just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. You happily put up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach, or a different kind of spirit than the one you receive, or a different kind of gospel than the one you believe. Now, Paul is, I guess it's, I mean, I think he'd be okay if I characterize it this way. He's kind of complaining in this section to the believers at Corinth that this particular group of Christians, uh, at least according to what Paul is saying, this group of believers at Corinth, they tend to be uh, more accepting and welcoming of these other teachers who are in effect competitors of Paul teaching some kind of different message. We're not exactly sure what their alternative message is, but Paul is complaining that these believers tend to be more welcoming of these other teachers Uh, than they are of he himself. But we're using this because along the way, he uses this really, I guess, odd phrase. Um, Even if they preach a different Jesus than the one, which is really interesting, right? Now, we we take it like he doesn't, he's not necessarily meaning that they're preaching about a different person named Jesus, you know, who might have been also from Galilee. That's not what he means. He means Jesus being described in such a different way that Paul can see fit to describe what these other teachers are teaching, he can describe it as a different Jesus. Now, that's really striking. And so, so we want to kind of deal with that a little bit 
Um, and we titled this study series, Jesus Is. And if we could have written it with a blank, we would have written it that way. What I want to do this morning is start out by just quickly summarizing um, a handful of descriptions or understandings of Jesus that come from culture, that are popular in culture. And then we're going to bounce into um, a look at Jesus according to Jesus. And I'm, I'll tell you right up front, I'm drawing from the work of the great New Testament scholar James Dunn. Um, he's a British New Testament scholar, actually passed away this past summer. So we lost a great one. Um, and he has a great book, Jesus According to the New Testament. And um, we may actually take some time and look very closely at this book of his. I think it's his uh, most recent and therefore would have been his final book, perhaps. Um, so he's pressing in decades and decades and decades of scholarship and pastoral work uh, into this book. And he actually goes through the New Testament and pulls out different nuances, as, uh, nuances of the description and the identity of Jesus from different sections of the New Testament. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book of Acts, the writings of the Apostle Paul, the book of Revelation. Um, how does Jesus appear to us in these different sections of the New Testament? It's a fascinating uh, book. And so I'm really drawn this morning from the spirit of that study by James Dunn. So let's look at just a handful of Jesuses according to culture. First, I want to talk a little bit about Jesus, the crucified Savior. Now, you will probably recognize this one. This is the Jesus who came to earth to die. Uh, and then most likely that death is understood, at least commonly in, in the uh, evangelical subculture. This is the Jesus who came to earth to die as some kind of payment to God for human sin so that those humans who place their faith in Jesus can be forgiven by God and then thankfully go to heaven when they die. Now, there's more to this version of Jesus, but this is the primary emphasis, right? Now, this, this version of Jesus also teaches us how to live. Um, he also sets a perfect moral example for us and some other things. But the main emphasis for Jesus, the crucified Savior, um, the main emphasis, which very often eclipses all the other aspects, is that this Jesus was sent by God to die. And again, most commonly understood to die as some sort of blood sacrifice to God. Now, is it possible to construct this Jesus from the New Testament? Sure, it is. Um, but in doing so, we rely on primarily the writings of the Apostle Paul and not from the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In other words, the very best we can say about this Jesus um, is that this might be, might be a description of Jesus according to the Apostle Paul, and this wouldn't fit very well if our answer is to, if our endeavor is to answer the question, who is Jesus according to Jesus, uh, which is where we're ultimately going this morning. Does that make this version of Jesus mistaken? Well, not necessarily so, but again, we want to get to bedrock. Who is Jesus according to Jesus? At least that's where we're going uh, today. So that's the first kind of Jesus that's out there, Jesus, the crucified Savior. And then secondly, there's this Jesus, and this is my word for it. You could, might put a different title on it, but there's one we could call the Hallmark Jesus. <laughs> uh, this is Jesus from the cheesy Jesus movies, right? The ones that they show around Easter and Christmas time. This is gentle Jesus who's honestly kind of spaced out, you know, when he delivers a sermon on the mount, you know, consider the lilies of the field. 
real spacey, real big bug-eyed kind of Jesus, you know. Uh, patient, gentle, attentive, devastatingly handsome, and always very, very, very white. <laughs> this is white Jesus. Um, this is the Jesus that we evangelicals sing about so passionately, almost romantically. We can sing songs about hold me, Jesus, you know. Uh, this is the Jesus who lifts me up when I'm down. He catches me when I'm falling. This is Jesus, my homeboy, right? You got the t-shirt, you know, platonic homeboy, obviously, but Jesus, my homeboy. And, you know, and again, it's not that these traits can't be found in the New Testament. They can be found there. But is this the core? Is this the core identity? Is this the center? Is this bedrock for who Jesus is? Is this Jesus according to? To Jesus. Think about that. And then here's the next one, and these are kind of my suggestions. You could be kind of fun to throw out some other ones maybe, but, but uh, this one is um, the American success Jesus. This is the Jesus who wants you to be successful as defined in, by the terms of the culture of the United States of America. This is the Jesus who wants you to be rich, beautiful, and thin like a movie star, right? Uh, this is the Jesus of the prosperity gospel subculture. This is the staple Jesus of the televangelists and mega churches. Again, this Jesus is very, very, very American, but you tend to find this Jesus less and less elsewhere uh, around the world, and you tend to find this Jesus still less in the New Testament, I can tell you that. Um, and then finally, and finally, we'll just do one more. Um, then there's what I'm calling placeholder Jesus. <laughs> uh, this is the Jesus who can become pretty much anything we want. We, that is, human beings in general, right? There's, a, there's like you can think of this tragic progression that eventually gets you to placeholder Jesus, and it kind of starts with first you, you pluck Jesus out of his Jewish roots so that you begin to imagine Jesus as something other than deeply Jewish. Um, then you, secondly, you begin to dismiss Jesus' own account of himself, his own self-understanding. Uh, and then you go ahead and finish the job off by obliterating what remains by shipping off the meaning of Jesus uh, somewhere off into the future, to some future disembodied reality where Jesus will suddenly become some kind of spirit king. But as for here and now, we've now plucked all the meaning and significance out of Jesus. And so what you have left is like this hollow religious empty shell that we can fill with whatever meaning we want so what we have left is is a an empty religious symbol that can be filled in with anything that any particular subculture uh wants to fill him with right so that's why you can have for example the jesus of the kkk or you can have the jesus of the nazi soldiers of the third reich who are reading the bible verses and singing all the hymns while they're walking the jewish people into the gas chambers that's how you get to that kind of thing. That's how you get the Jesus of the Crusades, even going back further in time. That's how you get the Jesus of uh, United States slaveholders. That's how you get slaveholder religion. You get you first, you devoid Jesus of all of his actual historical meaning, and you fill him with whatever meaning you want. That's how you get the Jesus of, again, in our own nation's history, manifest destiny, wiping out entire populations of, of Native Americans. While we sing the hymns and pray the prayers and so on, filling Jesus with any kind of meaning we want. 
That's how you get Republican Jesus or Democrat Jesus or you get a Jesus that wants to put America first or you get the Jesus who is opposed to LGBTQ people. That's how you get those Jesuses by pulling out all the meaning out of him and reinsert any meaning that you want. And that list goes on and on and on. And so wouldn't it be great if instead of all of that, we could discover something more solid, something more substantive. Wouldn't it be great if we could search for and find Jesus according to Jesus? What a novel thought, right? Uh, this is actually the, the bulk of what um, Dr. Dunn does in his book, Jesus According to the New Testament. He has different sections on it. Um, but the, the core of this book is, lo and behold, Jesus According to Jesus. And so what we have here this morning is actually the self-identifying marks uh, that James Dunn sees in terms of Jesus' own self-understanding. So this is, this is Jesus according to Jesus according to Dr. James Dunn, right? And so I thought about that, and, and actually I'm probably going to do this because this is, I'm now saying it out loud. So when I encountered this exercise, I thought, well, that's kind of cool, Jesus according to Jesus via Jimmy Dunn. And now what we might ought to do another Sunday is Jesus according to Jesus according to Lowell. Right? Wouldn't that be fun? Okay. So we might do that. All right. So here we go. Uh, Jesus according to Jesus. The first um, distinguishing mark is what I'm calling the surprise of the great commandment. Great commandment. You're familiar with this, even if you're not familiar with it by that title. Mark 12. One of the scribes came near and heard them disputing with uh, one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, the scribe, as Jesus, which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. It's a really interesting thing that Jesus does. He actually takes two pieces and puts them together as one commandment. And this is, um, uh, again, part of the brilliance of Jesus. But the first part, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, would have been very, very familiar to all of Jesus' original Jewish audience. Uh, it's still called the Shema. That's a, the Hebrew word for hear, Shema Israel. Um, would have been said over and over every day, prayed over and over every day by devout and faithful Jewish people, love the Lord your God. Uh, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Very, very familiar. But then Jesus tacks on this other commandment, which would have been mm, less familiar, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he folds these two into one commandment. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And then uh, according to another telling of this moment, there's some smarty pants in the audience who says, yeah, okay, great, and who is my neighbor? <laughs> right, trying to find the technical escape hatch. And Jesus answers the question with a story that's fairly familiar, the story of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus makes a hero out of this despised Samaritan, kind of a half-breed. Most Jewish people would look down upon Samaritans. And so Jesus makes a hero of the Samaritan basically saying, um, your neighbor is not just the person next to you who is like you and similar to you, but even the despised other. And again, these ideas would have been familiar to Jesus' uh, Jewish audience. Um, 
in, in the Old Testament scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, for them they call it the Torah, there is the command to love God. There is the command to love your neighbor. There is the command to love the stranger. Uh, appears dozens of times. But it seems as if, at least by the time of Jesus' day, it seems as if these second two loves had been largely, mm, let's just say neglected <laughs> or swallowed up by love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so Jesus brings back these other two in his coupling of love your neighbor as yourself and then defining the neighbor as the other. Jesus puts back together all three of these ancient love commands given by, well, I guess originally by Moses. Love God, love your neighbor, love the stranger would be Moses' threefold version. And then Jesus takes those three and turns them into two. Love God and love your neighbor and your neighbor is even the stranger, the other, as we might say. And so Jesus recaptured this. And again, this is a very surprising move, right? Um, just think about it, what, what Jesus is doing. He's a traditional, you know, standing in the tradition of the Jewish rabbis. And what he's saying, surprise, 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 is that to love God and to love people, even the other uh, these two loves go hand in hand and even mutually reflect one another, right? Like to love God is to love the image of God in the other. To love the image of God in the other is to love God. And this is a, this is a surprising move. Got to keep moving. Number two, the priority of the poor. Over and over and over again in the life and ministry and preaching of Jesus, he consistently gives a priority to the poor. Almost we could say, and some folks have said it this way, the preferential option toward the poor. He announced it in one of his summary statements, I came to give good news to the poor. Uh, he said another place is fairly well known, if you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. And again, this is somewhat controversial yet again because it's more controversial than we might think because the, according to the theology of many people in Jesus' day, perhaps not all, but according to many people in Jesus' day, to be poor was actually to suffer at the hands of God because their theological, their thinking worked like this. Um, you've obviously sinned against God, and now your poverty is like the consequence of the justice or the punishment of God for your sin, right? And this really comes from the what's commonly thought of as the the theology of the book of Deuteronomy. If you do all these commands, then everything's going to go great for you. But if you violate these commands, then life is going to be miserable. Well, then what the sages did, they said, okay, well, then we can reverse engineer that. And when we see misery, we know that we can follow that misery back upstream and find sinfulness in the life of that person, right? So that's what they, they basically reverse engineered the theology of Deuteronomy. And a lot of people thought that way. But Jesus comes along and he blasts through, right through that, pious wall of callous injustice. What, what they consider to be piety, the person is poor because of their sin, and so we express our righteousness by allowing that person to suffer in their poverty. Jesus blasts through all of that thinking. He says, no, you know what? That's nothing more than callous injustice masking itself as piety. So Jesus' preferential option for the poor is subversive. It is to overturn the cultural apple cart, and it's throughout his ministry. Number three, Jesus is characterized by radical 
hospitality. That is to say, Jesus welcomed the outcast, the stigmatized, the forbidden people, the people, uh, the people for whom uh, religious people had drawn the boundary lines around what is good, what is righteous, what is holy, uh, and these folks shall not come in. And Jesus stepped right across that line over and over and over again. Jesus scandalously, radically embraced the stigmatized, the forbidden, the outcast. And not only that, Jesus actually taught that he behaved this way because this is actually what God is like. And so Jesus declared that the entire social construct that you guys have created that has the in folks who are in and the out folks who are out, Jesus says, you're just making up stuff. That's not even what God is actually like. He constantly extends his welcome to those who have been rejected by religious people. Radical hospitality. Number four, kind of a subcategory of that, Jesus is characterized by the inclusion of non-Jews, also known as Gentiles. Jesus says that God's great banquet, and there's reason to think that in Jesus' mind, yes, the banquet is going to be someday, but the banquet has already begun now in some, in some way. Um, but this great banquet of God's healing, God's transformation of the world it's going to include not just Jewish people, but also non-Jews. In Matthew 8, he says, I tell you, many will come from the east and west and will eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the heirs of the kingdom, these are the covenant people, the Abraham people, the Jewish people, will be thrown into outer darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The point here for now for today is that Jesus' vision for God's great rescue includes all people, all peoples, all tribes. Um, and, and once again, just like we did with the love command, this universal scope of God's vision and project for the healing and transformation of the world, um, it, this universal scope was always embedded um, within the covenant with Abraham. But again, the universal omni-tribal aspect seems to have been lost over time, right? If you go all the way back to Genesis 12, you can read it later for extra credit. But what God actually says is, I'm going to bless you, and through you, all the tribes of the earth will be blessed. And so from the very beginning, even though covenant is very particular, very particular with Abraham and Abraham's sort of biological line, but even within that particularity, there is this universality built into it. And so, largely, the people of Israel had apparently forgotten that or failed or um, neglected to emphasize, I suppose, might say it a bit more gently. But Jesus picked up on that and brought it all back. Jesus is bringing back this omni-tribal heartbeat of the one true God. And we see it again uh, in what we know of as the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, all tribes, all people groups baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And so, but for, again, for Jesus, in his localized context, his inclusion of non-Jewish people is revolutionary. Fifth, this theme of the vital role uh, that Jesus gave to women in his ministry, in his life, 
women were included in Jesus' band of up-close followers. We see lots of evidence of this. Here's one example, Luke chapter 8. It says, soon afterwards, he went on through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, steward uh, who has a name that's hard to pronounce, and Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their resources. And so here's Luke just telling, just telling the story about here's Jesus, you know, innermost circle of, you know, his band of followers. And it includes the 12 that we know so much about, but also this group of women. Jesus spoke to women. He taught women. He ministered to women just like he did toward men. In fact, that was one thing that threw many people with regard to Jesus' habits and his his pattern, it was the dignity and respect that he showed toward women. He appeared first to women after his resurrection. Uh, uh, he, the first people that Jesus sent to tell about his resurrection were women. Women were, in that sense, the first and original apostles of the message of the resurrected Christ. All right, moving on. Number six, children are treasured and esteemed by Jesus. People brought their sick children to Jesus to be healed. They brought their kids to Jesus just to be blessed by him, and he did so. Now, we've talked about this before, uh, but just to say briefly, in the ancient world, life for children um, wasn't what we, at least ideally, carve out for children today. And I have to, you have to be really, because there are some children tragically, who suffer still today. But the very best research and scholarship um, at least says that there's reason to believe that this, the ancient world, this, some scholars even call this a dark age for children. Uh, that children, at least by many and many segments of, of the society, they were not treasured. They were not esteemed, uh, broadly speaking, in the ancient world. And certainly there are going to be exceptions to that, but just as a broad as a broad reality. So once again, Jesus is breaking with the cultural norm in this pattern of his, of treasuring and esteeming children. Here's uh, one example, Mark 10. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them. And the disciples spoke sternly to him, right? Don't, don't let these little children interrupt, you know, what the rabbi has got going on. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And he said to them, to his own people, let the little children come to me and don't stop them. For it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly I tell you, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and he blessed them. You know, there's no utilitarian value to that move, right, I guess in a way of speaking. Jesus is going to stop the entire segment, the entire, you know, teaching moment. Who, know, who, el who knows what else might have been going on in that moment with all these full-grown people. And that's doubtless why the disciples didn't want the children to interrupt. But for Jesus, it was no, 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 no. These are esteemed people, treasured people. We're going to stop the whole thing, and I am going to touch them. I am going to bless them. And not only that, I'm going to use their childlikeness 
as a model, as an example for all the rest of you to aspire to in terms of their innocence and openness and awestruck wonder over the goodness of the kingdom of God. So treasuring and esteeming little children. Now let's just pause right here at this point, and I want you to notice a theme in these several marks of Jesus' identity that we've looked at so far, and I want you to notice the consistent theme of Jesus ascribing dignity to those on the bottom, right? At every turn, Jesus is overturning the oppressive norm of existing culture and actually chooses and favors the underdog, at least, you know, according to culture, the outcast, the Gentile, the poor, the child, the woman, the vulnerable. Jesus overturns the norm and chooses in favor of those who are on the bottom. And if you can just hold on to that, you'll be holding on to one of the core bedrock aspects of the identity of this Jesus. Number seven, Jesus actually relaxed uh, Jewish food laws in favor of people and (coughs) what I'm calling virtue. That is to say, uh, like, for example, when Jesus said, you know, humans weren't made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for humans. That's Jesus relaxing the Jewish food laws in favor of people. And then secondly, Jesus... uh, emphasized that having an actual clean inner life is the thing that God uh, aims for and not just to have clean hands and clean dishes. That's an example of Jesus relaxing these, uh, these laws in favor of actual virtue as opposed to ceremonial cleanliness. Here's some of the content right at the core of this whole aspect of Jesus. Mark chapter 7, Jesus said to him, Uh, Then do you also fail to understand, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile, since it enters not the heart but the stomach and goes out into the sewer? Thus he declares all foods clean. This is enormous for a Jewish rabbi uh, to do such a thing. And he says it's what comes out of a person that defiles. So here Jesus is declaring all foods clean. Obviously, it's going to take a while for that one to sink in. This continues to be kind of a controversial matter throughout the period of the church history covered by the book of Acts. Um, And nevertheless, here it is. And again, the point here is that Jesus is, I'm using the word relaxing, you might even say he's nullifying food laws in this case. Uh, And the point is Jesus emphasizing actual virtue, actual virtue purity of inner life, right? So that's, that's the point of, of emphasis. Uh, a couple more, then I got a couple questions for you. Um, number eight, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. And it's not just that, it's that as many people have said, and I certainly agree, that this moment that we call the Lord's Supper on uh, Holy Thursday evening, it is the richest look that we get into Jesus' own understanding of his death. We get 
we get some other bits and pieces um, of Jesus' own self-understanding with regard to his death. But certainly with the Lord's Supper, we get the richest and deepest and the fullest look into how Jesus understood his death. He took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. He took the cup of wine and he said, this is my blood, a new covenant between you and God in my blood. And Jesus chose the Jewish festival of Passover in order to make his, well, (laughs) make his stand, his big controversial week in Jerusalem. He chose the Passover meal as this deepest, richest teaching experience for his disciples and by extension for us as well. Passover, it all happened at Passover. Passover, as you know, is the annual celebration, recognition, time when the Jewish people would look back at the events of where Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, and God miraculously, majestically, powerfully liberates ancient Israel out of slavery and out of Pharaoh's clutches and into freedom. They cross the Red Sea and go to Mount Sinai and get the Ten Commandments and become a people. That's, that's Passover. It's a story about God's powerful rescue, his liberation of the people of Israel. And Jesus leverages this observance festival, feast, Passover, to teach the deepest, richest, fullest understanding of the meaning of his death. Wow. He didn't choose the Day of Atonement to make his stand. He chose Passover, Freedom Day. He chose chose Freedom Day where the people of Israel remember and celebrate God as a liberator. this time, liberation, according to Jesus, this time liberation comes not by killing, but by dying. It's stunning. It's stunning. So Jesus gives his disciples, and this is through the ages and around the world, gives his disciples this this meal that connects them, us, with Jesus via his broken body and poured out blood. A broken body and a poured, and poured out blood is not just about death, by the way. People die all the time and their body's not broken and their blood doesn't pour out. Broken body and poured out blood, is a, these are symbols of a violent death. These are symbols of murder. We did the killing. Jesus did the dying. And Jesus gave us this meal to connect us with him and his death through the ages, through time, through the various cultures that we inhabit. And we are, by this act, 
the Lord's Supper continually connected and reconnected with this sacrificial Jesus. And then finally, Jesus announced the good news of the kingdom of God. Mark 1, now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the last bit that Jesus, I mean, I would say deep in his own self-understanding, is that Jesus saw himself both as the herald and as the vanguard of the kingdom of God. What does he mean by that? Well, the something about the rule of God, the reign of God is invading the here and now in order to transform the here and now. To speak of the kingdom of God is to speak of a transformed world. That's what Jesus was saying. Jesus announced the kingdom of God. Jesus taught about the kingdom of God. It's the pearl of great price. You want this more than you want anything, right? On and on and on. Um, so he taught about it. Jesus demonstrated the kingdom of God. When he fed the 5,000, he's demonstrating the plenty of the rule and reign of God. When he healed broken bodies, he's demonstrating um, the eradication of sickness and disease. And also, you know, in, a, in, the, in the ancient world, and sometimes sadly in our world today, chronic illness would have been a sentence to abject poverty. And so when Jesus heals these broken bodies, he's also restoring their dignity and place in society, certainly when we're talking about leprosy, the healing of leprosy. So the kingdom of God. Okay, so that gives you an idea, and, and I'm, I'm with James John on this list, but that's, I'll just have to say once again, that's his list. So if you don't like that list, then you can take it up with him at some future point in glory, because uh, he's with the Lord. Uh, and and let, by the way, there's some things that I think are missing from that list as well, which is why I said we might do Jesus according to Lowell uh, as a part of this series. But anyway, that's a really good list. I'm not messing around with that list. That's a good list. Okay. So there's Jesus according to Jesus. Now, I want to invite you in our last few minutes here together to reflect back on how we began with my sort of thumbnail sketch of some common Jesuses out there in culture. And let me ask you kind of this basic question to get the wheels turning. Between Jesus according to culture that I kind of spelled out with Hallmark Jesus and success Jesus and placeholder Jesus and so on, on the one hand, and on the other hand, Jesus according to Jesus, do you see mostly similarities between those two or mostly differences? <laughs> Don't answer out loud. <laughs> okay. So, you know, compare this description of Jesus according to Jesus with those common cultural Jesuses that I mentioned. Are they the same or are they different? Are they mostly similar or are they mostly different? 
I ask you not to answer out loud. I'll go ahead and answer out loud. By my analysis, they're mostly different. And in some cases, they are entirely different, entirely antithetical. I mean, I'm not saying you could probably, you could probably stretch here and there and show some overlap here and there. Um, but again, that would be the exception and not the rule. And that overlap could be demonstrated only because of the stretching, I would say. So next question, and I'm going to assume, I'm going to assume basically we all agree that they're, these two Jesuses are mostly different. So my next question is going to be this, like, where to from here? Like, what does this discrepancy suggest to us? If there's a discrepancy between the Jesus that we've inherited from culture and the Jesus that we see when we really honestly ask the question, who is Jesus according to Jesus? If there is a discrepancy there, then what does that recognition say or suggest to us? And this is where this could become an interesting conversation over coffee. But I want to offer, at a minimum, I think it suggests that we've may have lost our bearings a little bit somewhere along the way and drifted off course. I think it might suggest even, maybe, maybe it suggests that we have in fact created a religion around Jesus that as it turns out looks less and less and less like its founder. Wouldn't that be ironic? In fact, this is another observation by Dr. Dunn, and I think it's helpful, and I submit it to you this morning. Um, he points out this distinction between what might be called the religion of Jesus on the one hand and the religion about Jesus on the other. So the religion about Jesus might be found in some of those Jesuses that I described. It's a religion that's about Hallmark Jesus. It's a religion that's about success Jesus. That might be, that be the inherited religion of culture. But the religion of Jesus, Jesus' religion, his faith, the faith of Christ, the consciousness, the God consciousness that Jesus practiced, lived, taught, embodied. That's Jesus' own religion, the religion of Jesus. Everybody. The Jesus revolution is for human beings to take up the religion of Jesus. That's who we're called to be. We're called to take up the religion that Jesus of Nazareth lived taught and embodied that's what the church is and unfortunately it's not that the religion about Jesus can't be valuable and meaningful and I think it is but at root at the core who we're called to be is well say it another way the imitation of Christ not merely fans of Christ not merely worshipers of the religious symbol of Jesus Christ, but 
the hands and feet of Christ himself, the embodiment, imitators of Jesus. This is what the Apostle Paul is talking about as he's writing in blue in the face. The spirit of Jesus lives on the inside of you. What's he saying? That we're a group of people who have now taken up the religion of Jesus to practice and embody the faith that Jesus practiced and embodied. You understand? Now here I'm talking, I'm speaking kind of in human terms. But Jesus was a Jewish rabbi who saw God in a particular way. And as a result, he saw the world and saw society in a particular way. And basically, it was in a bottom-up kind of way. That's the religion of Jesus. That's how Jesus knew God. That's what he taught. That's what he preached. That's what he embodied. And he gave his life for that mandate, insisting that it was so. And then he turns to us. And he says, now. This is the faith that I'm handing you. This is the worldview, the mission, and the mandate. There's value. There's value in the religion about Jesus. No question about it. But the religion about Jesus is no substitute for the religion of Jesus himself. Is, am I saying it right? Is that, am I making sense? There's a big, big difference there. So Jesus is. Jesus According to Jesus. Let's pray. Ah, Father, we love you. We're grateful.